Well, I too want to welcome you uh, this morning to Alliance Bible Fellowship. I've had several people say to me this week or even this morning, golly, you got to get back to three services. I'm sorry, you have to preach three times. Those people don't know me very well. I'm so excited about this particular Sunday. Not only are our students um, back, but I, I do get to preach three times. I woke up at 2.45 this morning. Not kidding. I was here by 3.30, waiting for you. <laughs> Sit back. We're going to be a while. When a person is sworn in at court or perhaps sworn into an office, the traditional practice in this country has been to raise your right hand, place your left hand on the Bible, uh, kind of interesting. I know that we hardly see that practice anymore, but it was our tradition actually for, for centuries. And so, for example, at court, you used to typically hear something like this, uh, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. That statement or something like it can actually be traced all the way back to the 13th century. Another example, when the president of the United States is sworn in at his inauguration, he, what he says is actually spelled out in Article 1, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution. It goes like this, I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, listen to these words, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Now, while not required by the Constitution, the traditional practice has been to place your hand on a Bible um, as you recite that particular oath. Again, my question is, is why? Well, I mean, it follows tradition, one begun by our first president, George Washington. In fact, all but two presidents, um, two U.S. presidents have been sworn in with a hand on the Bible. Those two, surprisingly, John Quincy Adams and Teddy Roosevelt. We're not sure historically why Roosevelt chose not to, but President Adams, while a committed believer, chose to place his hand on a book of U.S. laws, the one that he was bound to apply as the chief, as the nation's chief executive officer. Uh, even our current President Barack Obama, uh, Obama has been sworn in both times with hand on the Bible, or I actually should say Bibles. You, you see, the first time he used a Bible that the first lady, uh, Michelle Obama, held, and, and then the... Um, there we go. I knew I had a picture there. Uh, and, the, and the second time, he had his hand on two Bibles, two of his favorite people, though Bibles owned by Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. Now look at those pictures. He looks a little grayer the second time <laughs> and maybe not quite as happy. But back to the, back to the question, Why? Why not the U.S. Constitution, since that's what the president is affirming to preserve, protect, and, and defend? It, it suggested that we place our hands on a Bible for a number of reasons. I, some say it's a book of ethics uh, to include truthfulness, so it binds the, uh, the oath taker, to, like in the court, to tell the truth. It's a book requiring faithfulness with clear implications of punishment for for breaking faithfulness, but most agree that it was, 
It was once a book in this country uh, of highest value. So we placed our hand on the, on the Bible, binding ourselves, taking an oath, swearing by that which we held in highest value, which I suppose explains why we hardly see the practice anymore. Many no longer hold its truth in very high value. In our continuing study of 2 Timothy, Paul is going to similarly place Timothy under a solemn oath. In fact, I will suggest that he figuratively places Timothy's hand on the Bible and puts him under a very solemn oath. You see, Paul wants Timothy to preserve, protect, and defend a document as as well. More than that, he has called Timothy to pass on that treasure. Now, now by the way, as I mentioned earlier, I know the students are back today, and for many of you, your last Sunday, uh, unless you're a freshman, your last Sunday was May 3rd, which was was the day that we began 2 Timothy. Welcome back. (laughs) We we will finish the book before you graduate, I promise. Uh, Actually, we have about three weeks left, and then we will... Lord willing, jump into the Gospel of Mark together. I cannot promise that we'll finish that book before you graduate, (laughs) unless you're a freshman, maybe. (laughs) So, since you're back, let me remind you of the context. Paul wrote Timothy, his son in the faith, from his last imprisonment. He was facing very certain execution, martyrdom. Opposition to the gospel had arisen from both without and within the church, from without in the form of, of persecution from the, of the very highest order, the Neronian persecution inaugurated by Emperor Nero himself, and, and opposition from within, actually, in the form of false teaching. In our country, we have similarly faced false teaching from within. I don't know if you know this, but false teaching is rampant in our country, But frankly, we are facing persecution from without in ever-increasing measure. It is no longer okay, no longer cool to be a Christian. You will find that you will be ridiculed, held in derision, opposed for holding biblical truth, that outdated book. So Paul's words to Timothy are more apropos today than perhaps they have ever been. He told Timothy, I need you to preserve, defend, and protect the the, the truth of the gospel, even if it costs you. In fact, it's going to cost you. Join with me in suffering for gospel truth. And while false teachers are seeking to destroy the gospel, I need you, Timothy, I need you to guard the treasure. More than that, I need you to pass it on to faithful people who will in turn pass it on to others for 2,000 years to the present day. It took us then to chapter 3 over the last couple of weeks. Know this, Timothy. In the last days in which... Timothy actually lived, and in fact, we now live, difficult times will come. Why? Because people will be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. That's always been the problem with humanity, always been the problem. They love themselves more than they love their Creator. As a result, 
uh, false teachers they, 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 that are running amok. They have a form of godliness. They look good, hold Bibles, stuff like that. No power there. But, but Timothy, you, you, you followed me. You know all about me. You know my teaching. You know my conduct, my way of life, this teaching and way of life that has, well, it's resulted in my current imprisonment. It's resulted in persecution and suffering. But you've got to know something. You've you got to know something. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is a way of life for, Christian, uh, for Christ's followers. I would suggest that it actually separates the professors from the possessors. Those who truly know Jesus from those who just jumped on the bandwagon because it was okay, it was cool, it's what we did on Sunday uh, morning. In fact, students, as you're here this morning, you know, mom and dad, I don't know, maybe they'll text you to see if you're in church right now, but hey, you get to decide. And, and now in Ephesus, false professors were deserting just like I believe they will today when the heat is turned up. And so, some of you will find the heat of opposition and derision unbearable, and you'll desert. But you, Timothy, continue in the things that you have learned. And, and, and that is the, that's the first, actually, of six ways in which in these few verses that he refers to the truth that must be preserved and, and protected and defended and, and, and passed on at all costs. He, he calls these things that he had learned from chapter 3 to chapter 4, things you've learned, the sacred writings, the scripture, the, the word, sound doctrine, and the truth. This is Paul's train of thought. Timothy, you know, you know these things. You know from whom you have learned them. You, you learned them from your... Your mom and your, your grandmother, you learned them from me, and perhaps that's true of you. You learned them from, from your parents. You also know that the truth that you learned came from a, from a priceless, inerrant source, the sacred writings, the Scripture has fallen into such disrepute today. In fact, you should know this. I want you to know this. All Scripture is God-breathed. All of it is inspired by God so that it is fully trustworthy, fully reliable, and profitable for teaching and reproving and correcting and training in righteousness. The Bible is all that you need to be adequate. That means to be competent, uh, to be the man or the woman of God that He has called you to be so that you can be equipped for every good work sitting in your lap. You've got it right now. That was the end of chapter 3 last week, a rather unfortunate chapter division, you see, because the context continues. Because all Scripture is God-breathed, because it is all fully inspired, perfect, and all that you need for life and godliness, then chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, our, our text this morning, because the Bible is God's perfect Word, because of that, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who, by the way, is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. It should have exclamation points after every one of those. That's what 
That's what Paul means. And this is his last letter that he wrote that we have in our Bibles. This is the last chapter of the last letter. And he's writing his son in the faith, Timothy. He says, I need you to preach the word. I need you to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction for. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate, they will gather around themselves teachers in accordance with their own, the word really means fleshly desires, and turn away from their ear, and will turn away their ears from the truth. And they're going to turn aside to mess, but you... I need you to be sober in all things. I want you to endure hardship, more literally suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Do you see how that is a little bit more solemn than just place your hand on the Bible and raise your right hand and repeat after me? He actually says the words, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. In light of the fact that the Bible is God's inerrant, inspired word, I need you, I want you, I'm commanding you, it's in the imperative, I'm commanding you to preach the Bible, preach the word. Why? Well, because, verses 3 to 5, there's going to come a time when they will ignore the Bible. They'll refuse it in favor of anything but truth. Preach the word, actually, verses 6 to 8, for, because I'm done, Timothy I'm about to be poured out in sacrifice. The time of my departure has come. I need you to preserve, protect, defend, and pass on the truth that you received from me. I'm done. I have passed the baton of faith on to you. Now it's your turn to pass it on to others. We'll look at those verses, 6 to 8, next week. But this week, we're going to look at this charge, its solemnity, the content of the charge, and the need for the church. Now, by strict interpretation, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a young leader. We call him a young pastor in the church in Ephesus. And as a result, this particular text is regularly preached at ordination services. And in fact, when Michael was ordained here just a little bit ago, his dad preached from this particular text. When a man is placed into gospel ministry as a pastor or a missionary, some kind of ministry leader, great text. So in a sense, and I need you to know something, I am preaching my job description today. That's fun. It's actually the job description of every pastor, of every church, of every time and in every place. And I am convinced that as I listen to the radio and read blogs and read books and visit churches and hear what churches are doing and what is being taught, that this job description is desperately needed in the church of Jesus Christ today. Pastors need to be reminded what they are and what they are to do and what they are not. Pastors are not CEOs, they are not marketers, they are not program managers, promoters, church growth experts, business professionals, politicians, motivational speakers, philosophers, counselors, or therapists. But you can go to any number of conference that will tell you how to do those things. We are first preachers. Proclaimers of the truth of the gospel found in the inspired, inerrant, eternal word of God. So this is a pastor's job description. But beyond that, let me suggest a couple of other very appropriate applications for all of us. First, 
First, this is what you should expect of pastors, whether in this church or any church where you may choose to worship and serve. I know that we're a, a little bit bigger church, so we get lots of visitors. You know, people move to Boone. You know, new students come to town. Your job, you know, brings you here. And, and so here you are. You're, you're church shopping. I get that. I understand that. But I want you to know what we are talking about today is a foundational characteristic to look for in a church. As you visit around, find a church that majors on the Bible. And if they don't, don't, don't go there. And I'm just saying, by the way, we do. Um, just <laughs> I throw that in. Okay. Um, th this should be the measuring rod of any ministry, and frankly, any ministry leader, regardless of ministry duties. The Word of God needs to be central. I don't care how God has gifted you. I don't care what you are doing in terms of ministry, either here or in the community, on the campus. I don't care. It should be central to who we are. And even as you oversee and, and manage programs, we should build those programs on the Bible. Too many people, and I'm talking about those within the local church today, too many, too many ministry leaders in the church focus on programs and leadership and administration and all those things are good and, and, and necessary for the church. After all, that's why there are a couple of spiritual gifts called administration and leadership. But please, please, please do not leave the Bible behind. Don't lose the Scripture for the latest leadership book or ministry fad or church growth technique. Allow the Bible to inform everything that you are and everything that you do. So... The Bible should be the, measure, the measuring rod of every ministry and every ministry leader. But I am also going to get, take it one step further, going to burrow down just a bit deeper and suggest that this should be the passion of every believer. That is to know the Word of God, to be able to handle it accurate, accurately, to be able to share it faithfully, to proclaim it well in whatever context you find yourself. I know when I say that, in whatever context you find yourself means that when you speak the truth of God's Word, you will be persecuted, of course. This is, this is very serious. Paul is leveling as much severity and solemnity as he can. Look, look at our first point, the solemnity of the charge. I solemnly charge you, and, and this is how serious the charge is. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Again, Paul does not ask Timothy to place his left hand on the Bible, raise his right hand, repeat after me. Instead, he charges him to hold out the Bible in the presence of the author of the Bible and in front of God's people. Serious oath. I'm going to charge you to preach God's word, so I charge you in the presence of his author, in the presence of God himself, before the omnipresent one, the one who is present wherever, whenever God's people gather for worship. Timothy, people of God, hold out the Bible. Wherever truth is proclaimed, I charge you in the presence of the one, by the way, who will be there. Can you imagine then for a moment how God's heart must be grieved when churches gather for worship and somehow forget his word? 
His word often plays a very secondary role in churches today behind what? Well, behind really cool worship songs that we've written. So what's important, right? I want to look for a church where I can get good worship. Behind really cool programs that we've developed, behind the charismatic leadership of a motivational speaker up front, and God's word is cast into a supporting role rather than the very lead role that it should take. It's amazing the number of churches today that have made the Bible ancillary, optional. It's a nice story book. It's got practical, it's a practical way to live book. It's an ethics book. We make it anything but central to who we are as the people of God. And as a result, somewhere along the way, I'm going to tell you right now, somewhere along the way, the gospel is being lost. The necessity of salvation by grace through faith and the finished work of Christ is gone from many churches. The Bible has become a helpful book by which we can apply some principles rather than Understand that they are the very words of God which are to govern our lives. Notice how Paul equates Jesus with God. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Why would he add Jesus? Don't you think God's enough? I mean, you can't charge Timothy with anything greater than than are equal to God, blessed it be. Well, God, that's what he does. I charge you in the presence of God and his divine son, Jesus And if that isn't enough, he goes further. In the presence of Jesus, by the way, the one who is going to judge. Who? Well, you. The living and the dead. Not only do I charge you in the presence of the author of the book, I remind you that Jesus will be the one judging both the living and the dead. That's Paul's way of saying everyone, including you, Timothy. He will judge you. You say, I don't think I like, I, that's not, no, I don't, that's not true. I, I, I don't think we would ever be judged. That's true as it relates to sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No judgment for the purpose of condemnation. That is true, but the scripture is also clear that we as believers will be judged for our works for the purpose of reward. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat. It's the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may be recompensed, rewarded for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, again, he's not talking about sins. Those were paid for at the cross. But our deeds done in the body, either good or bad, speak of those things done of eternal value or not. In fact, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, an earlier book that he wrote to this particular church, he said that our works will be judged by fire so as to demonstrate their value. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. The, the, the point is we can do works that are consistent with Scripture and carry eternal value with eternal reward, or we can do things inconsistent with Scripture, maybe even opposed to Scripture, which will burn up. My grave concern is that the work of Alliance Bible Fellowship, that my ministry not burn up. Paul says, Timothy, you're going to be judged by Jesus. We remember in John chapter 5, Jesus told the Pharisees, the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. And then in James chapter 3, we read these very 
sobering words, not let many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that as such, we teachers will incur stricter judgment. Jesus, the one who judges the living and the dead, will judge teachers more strictly for the way that they have obeyed or not obeyed this particular text that we are looking at. I take this very seriously. Hebrews 13 says it. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Jesus will judge. He reminds Timothy, this one who has been appointed judge, he will appear. He's coming back. And when he does, he's going to set up his kingdom, a kingdom which will begin with judgment. Do you see how serious this charge is? And we haven't even gotten to the charge yet. It brings us to our second point, the charge. I've already said it, preach. Preach the word. That's the main charge. That's what I want you to do. Preach the word. The word in chapter 2, he called the word of God and the word of truth. Again, the context from the end of chapter 3 makes it clear that he's talking about God breathed Scripture. Preach the Bible. Let me be clear on this. Don't preach your ideas, your opinions, your politics, your positions, your stories. Preach the Word. He goes on to give five imperatives, or he actually gives in this verse five imperatives or commands in one verse. He gives nine imperatives in these few short verses, five in this one verse related to preaching the Word. First, preach the Word. Proclaim it aloud. Be a herald of the word. He goes, gives four more commands that describe the nature of the proclamation. Kind of answering the question, how, when, what, and, and, and when. First, when do we preach? Well, he says, in season and out of season. Be ready. The idea speaks of urgency. This is, this is urgent. Preach it all the time. John Stott asked the question, and we, speaking of this idea of urgency, how can we preach such truth with cold indifference like we're giving a lecture? Well, people get sometimes irritable that I get so excited, but I can't, I, I, I honestly can't help it. If you want a homily, this is not the place. And this, by the way, is a command to a preacher, not the listener. He's not saying be ready to hear the Word of God in season and out of season. Rather, be ready to preach the Word at all times is the idea. You see, this in season and out of season means when it's convenient you know, to you and when it's not convenient, when they listen and even when they don't want to listen, you always be ready to preach the Word. And what is it that we preach? Obviously the Word, but in such a way that it reproves and that it rebukes and that it exhorts. We remember from last week all Scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching and reproving and correcting and, and, and training. To reprove here means to correct one in sin or in error. He's probably there talking about the false teachers. Reprove them. Point out their error. I get to do that. I don't care if people don't like it. I get to do it. And then rebuke means to bring that action to an end. Those two words actually go together, reprove, point out their error. Number two, rebuke, bring that error to an end. To exhort then means to both encourage and admonish in truth, in the truth, encourage a faithful walk of righteousness consistent with the Word of God. How can we do that if we don't spend time in the Scripture? How do we preach the end of the verse with all patience? 
<sighs> and instruction. The preacher must have great patience with both believers and unbelievers alike. Remember the end of chapter 2 when he said, the Lord's servant must not be combative, quarrelsome. He must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, maybe in gentleness correcting those. If maybe God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. A preacher is to be a patient proclaimer of the Word of God. Now listen to this. We need to be patient because people will oppose the truth. Let me tell you the story of Pastor Charles Simeon. When Pastor Charles first came to Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge in 1782 at the ripe old age of 23, no one wanted him there. This was a time when you were assigned your church. No one wanted him there. They made it very clear. He was 23 years old. They would insult him as verbal, vocally as he walked down the streets of Cambridge. They often interrupted his sermons. We have a security team. I'd advise you not to do that. <laughs> Kidding. No, we do have a security team, but... <laughs> These people of this Trinity Church um, actually locked their pews. You see, this was the time when you owned a particular row, had a little gate on it, complete with a lock to keep other people out. After all, it was your pew. Well, the people of the church didn't want him there, so they did not unlock their rows. So the people who came to worship had to literally stand in the aisles. Couldn't sit down. They had to stand in the aisles for worship. They did that to him for 12 years, but he stayed and then patiently pastored the people of Cambridge for 54 years, about as long as I've been alive. Preach with patience. And notice, preach with instruction. Some have suggested a helpful line between preaching and teaching. Preaching is proclaiming the truths of the gospel to unbelievers, uh, while teaching is instructing the way of the gospel life to believers. I think that's helpful, but I think that Paul says even preaching, both the believers and unbelievers, should be instructive. Drop down to verse 5 very quickly to see further how Timothy was to preach the word, because he gives four more imperatives. We're going to go very quickly. Four more commands. First, he says, while others are turning away, we'll see that in a moment, while others are turning away from sound doctrine found in the Word of God. You, Timothy, be sober in all things. This idea of sobriety, of, it, it, it speaks of a, a sobriety of spirit in everything. Don't allow the, your spirit to be carried away with the drunkenness of the times as people feast on false doctrines. You be sober. Ministry is serious. I occasionally I occasionally accidentally say something funny. But if you're looking for funny, this is not the place. It's not who I am. This is serious. Be sober in all things. Second imperative, endure hardship. Again, that word hardship is better, is, is used in chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 2, verse 3, better translated endure suffering. The idea is ministry is difficult, challenging, and you will be opposed. So Timothy, preachers, 
Suffer for the gospel. Endure it. Don't quit, as others often do when the demands of ministry and suffering increase. I don't even know what the statistics are. They are pathetic. They are woeful about preachers who quit. Third, do the work of an evangelist. This word is only used a couple of other times in Scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, talking about gifted men given to the church, and in Acts chapter 8, talking about Philip who was an evangelist. The idea seems to refer to this idea of holding out the fundamental truths of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for sinners in a very special way. He says, do the work. Whether you have the gift or not, do the work of an evangelist. Your your ministry, whatever form it takes, Take the good news of Jesus with you. Don't ever leave that behind. Lastly, fulfill your ministry. Complete your ministry. Leave, Timothy, leave nothing undone. I don't care how difficult it is, how much suffering is. Fulfill, complete your ministry. This is an important word to pastors today who are frankly often lazy. So, why do we do this? Last point. First reason. He actually gives two reasons. First is found in verses 3 and 4. Second is in verses 6 to 8, which we'll look at next week. But, but the first, verses 3 and 4, for, why do you do this? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And if there has ever been a time when people have not endured, they've not put, put up with sound doctrine, it is today. Sound doctrine from the Word of God. I was having lunch with someone this week, actually another pastor, not from our church, but he, we know each other, and he knows that I preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and he said to me, I don't think he meant to be condescending, but he said to me, you know, Scott, the largest and fastest growing churches are the ones that preach series to meet the felt needs of people. whoop de doo to which I responded, so how then do they get the Bible? You know, like all of it. How do they get sound doctrine if all we are doing is teaching them how to have a functional family or marriage or how they can manage their finances or how they can be a good neighbor or state farm? How? How? How do they get the Bible? Yeah. I am deeply and passionately committed to teaching the Scripture verse by verse so that we get the Word of God. Listen, I was, <laughs> I don't have this in my notes, but I, I thought I would look at some of the large churches in, in our country, and I did. I went to see what their current preaching series are, you know, because they aren't preaching First, Second Timothy. <laughs> and the first one I went to, the very first one this Sunday, it starts this morning, how you can be happy. Now, it's a good church, actually, and and I believe that the pastor will preach a good good series of sermons on that topic because I do believe that God wants you to be joy-filled, but I believe that it comes from knowing Him through the Word of God. I'm deeply, passionately committed teaching the Scripture verse by verse, not my opinions, not my ideas, not my topics, not scratching my or your ears, not giving you ten steps to be a successful fill in the blank, but simply to preach the word of truth, which will then give you sound doctrine. And I want to tell you that as we do that, sometimes we come across truths that people do not like. We've had people leave this church because they don't like what the word of God says. 
you can f go find another one. They're out there. Because the time will come when some of the largest and fastest growing churches are not teaching the word, when people are not enduring sound doctrine. Rather, they want to have their ears tickled. The idea is they want to hear stuff that makes them feel good about themselves, stimulates them. As a result, they gather the ideas, accumulate around themselves teachers to meet those personal desires. And in the context of the of, of pastoral epistles, that word always speaks of fleshly desires. And they will turn away from the truth, that is the truth of God's word, turn aside to myths, fables, falsehoods, ultimately heresy. The landscape is littered with churches that started out well, got away from this, and now do what? Timothy, preach the word. Back to Charles, Pastor Charles Simeon as we close this morning. In April... 1831, he was 71 years old. He had been the pastor of Trinity Church for 49 years. F 49 faithful years. And he was asked one afternoon by his close friend, Joseph Gurney, how he was able to stay with it, how he was able to overcome the persecution and outlast the great prejudice against him and his ministry these 49 years. Simeon responded to his friend, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. My brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming back to set up his kingdom. And he will judge. Until then, we must preserve, protect, defend, and pass on glorious gospel truth. And if you choose to do that, it will cost you. You will suffer for speaking and living the gospel. And so, we must not mind a little suffering. Let's stand for prayer.